On this week's 51%, we speak with Howard University's Dr. Clarence Lusane about his new book, $20 and Change, on the lifelong activism of Harriet Tubman and the future of the $20 bill. Not only did she fight for racial justice, women's rights, she really was a warrior for an inclusive democracy. Our associate producer, Jody Cowan, also sits down with Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman for some Black Earth wisdom. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Today we're recognizing Black History Month and getting ready for a Women's History Month with a very important birthday. Harriet Tubman was born Araminta Ross in early March, more than 200 years ago. Now most of us know Tubman for her work on the Underground Railroad. Born into slavery, she escaped the South, but ultimately returned to guide her friends, family, and dozens of others to freedom. We may also soon know her as the woman on the $20 bill. In 2016, the U.S. Treasury drew a mixture of praise and outcry when it announced that it would change the bill to replace former President Andrew Jackson with Tubman's image starting in 2030. But as our main guest today will tell us, Tubman's story doesn't stop at the Underground Railroad, and her legacy demands much more than a symbolic change. Dr. Clarence Lusane is a political science professor and director of the International Affairs Program at Howard University. Lusane earned widespread acclaim for his 2011 book, The Black History of the White House, and his new book on Harriet Tubman is called $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. In addition to fleshing out the debate over the future of the $20 bill and what it says about America right now, Lusain takes stock of Tubman's enormous contribution to our country, beyond her work with the Underground Railroad. For example, Lusain says many people don't realize that Tubman was a lifelong activist and an active participant in the Civil War. Well, she ended up contracting with the Union Army, and she worked as a scout. No one knew the back roads and the valleys and the rivers uh, more than Harriet Tubman. She had literally walked those areas. Uh, she was a spy. Uh, she was a cook. She was a nurse. But she also was the first woman to lead a military operation. In uh, 1863, she led three ships down the Combahee River, South Carolina, uh, with about uh, 150, 200 soldiers or so. And the uh, idea was to attack Confederate encampments along the river, uh, which they did. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as they came upon these encampments and the soldiers, the Confederates ran away, people who were enslaved in that area came to the ships. So they rescued over 700 enslaved people. She did. Wow. Uh, and that's just amazing and remarkable. None of the Union uh, soldiers died. Uh, none of the enslaved people died. So that was her doing the war. But after the war, she became active in uh, women's rights and in the suffrage movement. She engaged with both Black women who were uh, involved in those movements, as well as white women who were in the more uh, larger movement. 
so all of that was, you know, really her life. And she advocated for the poor. Uh, she advocated for the disabled. Uh, she had been disabled herself when she was a child. Uh, she had been hit in the head with a two-pound metal object. She survived. She had seizures all of her life. And again, uh, this is someone who, with that disability, still accomplished so much. You say that this book is an effort to link the struggles of the past with the challenges of the present. What can we learn from Harriet Tubman's story, and how can we apply it to the issues that we're currently facing as a country? Not only did she fight for spiritual justice and uh, women's rights, disability rights, but I think when you add it all together, she really was a warrior for an inclusive democracy, one that included people of color, people who had been marginalized, women, poor people. Uh, and so I think that's really the lesson to take from her. Uh, she, of course, did not use the term intersectionality, uh, but in effect, she was someone who saw linkages among the different issues that uh, people were facing. And so I think, you know, we have to take that lesson from her. Uh, also, I think, again, she was born in 1822. Uh, when she was born, the country was still very young. Thomas Jefferson, uh, John Adams were still alive, the uh, earliest presidents. And she lived to 1913. Ronald Reagan had been born, right? So she really kind of touched three centuries in the country's life, none of which during that entire time did she ever have full democratic rights. She died before the uh, passage of the 19th Amendment. She died before the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So she never fully enjoyed just kind of basic democracy, but she never uh, gave up. She continued to kind of push and fight for uh, inclusiveness. So Harriet Tubman is going to be on the $20 bill starting in 2030. I think we should talk a little bit about the importance of that. Good question. Absolutely good question. The idea of representation is really important uh, in terms of public symbolism. And who is giving places of honor, if you will, uh, whether it's statues, whether it's memorials, whether it's buildings being named after certain individuals, or images on currency, all tell a story about the country and who at particular moments are deemed as included or excluded, or that their story matters or that their story does not matter. Up until 2015, 2016, when the Treasury Department decided it would change images on the $5, $10, and $20 bill, all the images uh, had basically been of white men. There were a couple of special exceptions along the way where Martha Washington and Pocahontas uh, for very short times were on special bills, but basically it had been uh, white males. Now, the idea then was that Andrew Jackson would be put on the back of the bill. So there's still some resistance to that. There's still debate. There's still activists, including myself, who find that unacceptable uh, and that Jackson should be removed overall. When you compare what Jackson did and his role as a slave owner, his role as a slave trader, uh, his attacks on indigenous communities, literally 
personally military attacks that he was engaged in uh, and laws that he pushed through when he was president, uh, particularly the Indian Removal Act, does not warrant him being on the bill with uh, Harriet Tubman. I was going to ask about your thoughts on Jackson still being on the backside of the bill. I mean, the whole situation certainly feels symbolic in and of itself. I mean, there's these two competing ideas of America having to share space on the same bill. There's resistance to making these kinds of changes. Last month, the nation celebrated the King holiday, uh, named after Martin Luther King. But in Mississippi and Alabama, they celebrated the King Lee holiday, the Lee being Robert E. Lee, who was the general during the Confederacy. Now, again, you couldn't find two more individuals more disparate than Martin Luther King and Robert E. Lee. But there's a resistance among some in the country to not acknowledge the way in which the Civil War was about defending slavery. And it wasn't about heritage. It wasn't about states' rights. It was really about defending slavery. And at the time, it was clearly understood that that was what the war was about. It was only 20, 30 years later that you begin to get a different narrative about what the war was about. And then that's when you begin to see the Confederate statues and the memorials all in the service of this new narrative about the Civil War. You present perspectives from many sides of the decision to put Tubman on the $20 bill, including opposition within the Black community, which I found a little bit surprising, too. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So there's conservative opposition, and a lot of that's coming from, let's hold on to tradition, why this is wokeness, this is cancel culture. So it's a lot of the sort of ongoing kind of conservative lines about uh, resisting representation. Uh, But on the other side, there are people in the Black community, uh, including progressive Black women, who are fearful that this is performative anti-racism, performative uh, support for gender equality. And I understand the sympathy. Uh, There certainly has been a lot of empty symbolism. And sometimes when the choice has been between actually some significant policy change and something that looks generically symbolic, the latter sometimes gets chosen. Uh, But I do think there's a relationship between the two and how we think about the country, how we think about who's in the country, and how we think about the breadth of representation, all of which is either reinforced or rejected by the symbols that we uh, engage. All of that shapes how we decide on public policy. If we have a genuine sense of history and the exclusion of women, people of color, then the policies that we develop will be very different than if we have an alternative view. So symbolism to me in that sense then directly related to our politics and to our policy decisions. Well, lastly, what do you make of Harriet Tubman's legacy and what do you hope readers most take away from this book? So I think she's uh, been inspiring. Uh, I mentioned the uh, Kambahi River uh, military operation that she carried out. In the 1970s, 
there was a group of black lesbian women who felt both alienated from the black movement as well as the traditional women's movement. Uh, so they formed their own collective and they called it the Kumbahi River uh, Collective, which was to honor uh, Harriet Tubman. And so, you know, she's had that kind of impact. I'll try to detail in the book how many of the issues we're facing today that have all kinds of intersectional uh, concerns around race, gender, uh, LGBTQ concerns, and so forth, uh, we really can link back to, to Harry Tubman in a number of ways. So for example, there's a chapter called From 1619 to COVID-19 uh, that discusses the ways in which the COVID pandemic uh, became racialized and had very different kinds of impacts. But the context of that goes back to when Africans first came to the U.S., uh, were enslaved, and their health care was not a priority. And it meant, again, people like Harriet Tubman could be injured seriously, but the concern wasn't her injury. It was whether she could continue to work uh, as an enslaved person. In 1918, 1919, when there was a pandemic during that period, legal segregation existed in the country, and it had an impact on how Black people uh, were affected uh, by that pandemic. So, you know, there's a link between what we've been facing these days and uh, the history. Uh, there's a chapter on voting rights. Uh, that centers the long battle around voting rights uh, going back pretty much to the beginning of the country and how at least a third of the amendments to the Constitution have been around voting because it's been such a challenge to make it fully democratic for uh, people to have uh, the right to vote. Uh, I mentioned the uh, 1913 March the suffrage march. Uh, and this was happening literally as Harriet Tubman uh, was on her deathbed. And some of her last words, uh, which she spoke to a Black leader of the suffrage movement, was to send encouragement to Black women who wanted to participate in the march. Some of the leaders of the march uh, initially did not want Black women to participate. And then they kind of put out the message that Black women could participate, but they had to be at the back of the march. Women like Ida B. Wells and others resisted that. Uh, but again, Harriet Tubman knew all of this was going on. And as she's dying, she says, you know, tell the women to be strong. God will not forsake it. So, you know, you can see just her echoes in so much of what we're doing today and the issues we're kind of addressing uh, now. Dr. Clarence Lusane is a political science professor and former political science department chair at Howard University. He now leads the university's international affairs program, and his latest book is $20 in Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy, out now from City Lights Publishers. Dr. Lusane, thanks for taking the time. Uh, no, thank you so much for having me.
Now, on the day we recorded this episode, here in Albany at least, I was digging my car out of ice and snow. So maybe right now you're not exactly thinking about your next outdoor adventure. But our next guest pretty much always is. Rue Mapp is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, the blog-turned-movement-turned-organization celebrating Black connections and leadership in nature. Since 2009, Outdoor Afro has dispelled the myth that outdoor recreation is mainly for white people. In her new book, Nature Swagger, Mapp explores her own connection with nature, how it shaped her, and how it shaped her friends, from childhood camping trips to snowboarding, surfing, and mountain climbing. Not only did I want to lift up this representation of Black people in the outdoors as strong, beautiful, and free, but also to show the range of how nature touches our lives in ways that can be highly relevant, can speak to our past, can speak to the future we want to create with others. There's this pantheon or trope, you know, that it's got to be about camping, it's got to be about rock climbing, or it's got to be you know, of course, hiking, or it's got to be about these peak experiences of, you know, breaking records or taking on the longest of the, or the tallest of whatever. And there's a little bit of that in the book, but I also wanted to lean into those quiet moments where nature and its influence on people's lives was perhaps hiding in plain sight. You mentioned that, you know, nature plays such a big role in our lives. Would you like to share any of your experiences or any of the experiences of the people that you featured in this book? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, nature is not necessarily an event. It's about living your life, you know, and having a connection to other people and importantly, a connection to yourself. Some of the nature experiences that I just love that sustain me day in and day out is like walking my dog through the neighborhood observing the changes in the season through the landscape in people's yards, to have that quiet time to just feel the air on my skin, you know, to breathe. I mean, I've been to some places, like I've been to, you know, the Arctic Circle, I've been to Antarctica, I've traveled all over this country doing all kinds of things. And I would say the thing that's most present in each of those experiences, whether they be peak ones or everyday ones, is this notion of really being present. And that presence that informs your order in the world. I mean, if you're walking through a redwood forest and you see, you know, this 150 foot tall tree, you know, it's just like, wow, like what has this tree seen? And you think a lot about resilience and regeneration and, and the interconnectivity that starts at the, at the root level. It's so much about presence. It's so much about situating yourself in a way that I find to be calming and helping to affirm what really matters in my day-to-day life. Now, you've also, I mean, you've done a significant work with Outdoor Afro. I was going to ask, like, what's next for the organization? What are you guys working on right now? You know, we're kind of in our next right now in a lot of ways. Um, The organization started off as a blog and it really started off with focusing on helping to shift the visual representation of who we imagine gets outside. I was so much focused in the beginning on, you know, shifting that visual representation and lifting up the stories of people like my family, as well as the people who persevered through really the worst of times for Black people in this country through Jim Crow to still create places like 
Lake Ivanhoe and the Inkwell and Lincoln Hills and so many other places that demonstrated a priority to connect with nature as a place of peace and refuge and also were the incubators for outfitters and equipment sellers and innkeepers that are a part of what we now can understand and segment as the outdoor industry today. And as we've evolved, we've helped people to get outside. And so I've been training outdoor leaders for the last near decade. This year's class, we have 120 men and women from around the US in over 30 states and nearly 60 cities who are getting people into the outdoors to hike, bike, camp, you name it, like whatever it is that you want to do, we're doing it. In 2021, I started Outdoor Afro Incorporated and just launched a 22-piece hike collection with REI to help, you know, address the barriers of fit and function and design that previously were not addressed in the outdoor industry and particularly for gear and equipment. Well, in the spirit of getting people outside, do you have any favorite spots or advice for those wanting to reconnect with nature? Yeah. I mean, I always tell people to start at your kitchen window. Just start noticing what's right around your house, because a lot of times nature gets framed as someplace over there. Like you've got to go far away. You've got to go to an iconic landscape. You've got to go to, you know, one of the top 10 national parks in order to experience. And these are incredible you know, ways, of course, you know, that are a big part of my life. But I do want to move people in a direction of recognizing that we all have equal access to nature and that nature access begins usually close to home. I love checking out my city parks and each of these systems, they have websites, they have organized hikes, they have all kinds of ways that you can get involved and learn more about those places. And then if you're interested in maybe getting out with other people, there are so many affinity groups that did not exist when Outdoor Afro first began. You could be a new mom. You can be, you know, someone who's really into a particular kind of, you know, biome like the beach. There's a group for that. And of course, Outdoor Afro is there for you. And Outdoor Afro is welcome to anybody. But I know that affinity groups from my experience as a Girl Scout are really important to be able to get out and know that you can connect with certain people on a at a basic level around whatever way you show up in the world. And that can really help you feel confident. And I know that because I've had so many great experiences in my family, in my affinity group, starting as a Girl Scout and then later Outdoor Afro, that it's really helped set me up to be confident anywhere I wanna go in nature. Rumap is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro. Her latest book is Nature Swagger. Before you lace up your sneakers and head out, we'll bring you one last segment between our associate producer, Jody Cowan, and farmer Leah Penniman. Penniman is the founding co-director of Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York, and the author of the popular guide Farming While Black. She also has a new book in the works called Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. 
This time around, Penniman reflects on the idea that ecological humility is an intrinsic part of Black heritage. Across several essays and interviews, she seeks out some of today's most respected Black environmentalists to hear what they've learned about the fight for racial and environmental justice, about their spiritual and scientific connection to nature, and the skill of listening to the earth. Black Earth Wisdom's writing was inspired by Dr. George Washington Carver, who was a black agronomist in the late 1800s out of Tuskegee, Alabama, who came up with thousands of patents related to uh, sweet potatoes and peanuts, was the founder of organic agriculture in modern times, uh, mycologist. And he had an incredible practice where every morning in the pre-dawn hours, he would get up and go to the forest and talk to God through the trees, the flowers, and the animals. He believed that nature was God's broadcasting system and credits all of his inventions to hearing a divine voice through listening to nature. And that set me off on a journey of trying to understand who today still has that skill of listening to the earth, of understanding the languages of the earth, and what is the earth saying? So 40 interviews later and months of of writing and editing, uh, Black Earth Wisdom was born, and it also inspired me to take some time uh, to cultivate my own skill of earth listening. When collecting all this, what was the editing process of that like? Well, I'll tell you the process was I, I call up one earth listening elder, you know, Mama Claudia Ford, and, and interview her and then say, well, who else? And she'd give me two or three names. You know, 10 became 20, became 30, became 40. At some point, there, was, there were deadlines and word counts on the horizon. So I created a directory, which you can find online at blackearthwisdom.org, to try to catch some of what I couldn't get to, full knowing that no single volume could do justice to the immensity of black ecological genius. Which seems like a wonderful problem to have, especially you know, after the forward in your first book from Karen Washington and, and talking about the Northeast Farmers Association meeting that you guys went to and, and feeling like there was there was no space for farmers of color and you literally having to kind of commandeer a classroom and create that space. This was in 2010, 13 years later, and after the forming of, you know, Soul Fire Farm and, and just doing the work that you've been doing, do you feel like you're still having to kind of carve these spaces out? Or are you finding these spaces waiting for you? I do feel like we are still in an uphill dance. To speak to the younger child in me, because I was started farming in 1996. It was a very white world in the organic farming movement. And I believed in those myths that white men had come up with all these great ideas in organic farming. It was Karen Washington who helped me see otherwise. It was the process of of watching her create the the black urban growers and our national conference and telling me, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. And It's true in the environmental space as well. You know, um, Dorsetta Taylor uh, has done incredible research that demonstrates that the environmental field is still in very white-dominated senior positions, you know, 97% white folks. And and it's not because there's a lack of, of good ideas and good practices in the black community, but the environmental movement has eugenicist roots. You know, the national parks were created by displacing indigenous people. They were created as a playground to... Uh, enhance the Nordic race, according to their founder. Uh, black black and brown folks were excluded from the national parks for generations. And so we are still overcoming this history that has an idea of a pristine wilderness that's held out separate uh, from people of color, uh, with people of color being you know, relegated to another status. And I think we're making incredible headway. There is no doubt about that. Uh, but the, the battle is not finished. With this book, do you see it as part two to the first book, Farming While Black? 
if I didn't take the necessary steps to figure out how to attend land and steward it, can I jump into this book and still kind of glean wisdom or should I take some first steps before getting into that? I love that. I think the two books complement one another. And if anything, Black Earth Wisdom is a prequel to Farming While Black. Farming While Black is very practical. How do you plant a seed? How do you do your compost pile? And it's filled with stories of black agrarian brilliance because for so long, organic agriculture has been been seen as ahistorical or strictly European. And so we needed the stories of Dr. Carver, of Fannie Lou Hamer, of the Ovambo people with their raised beds, of the Egyptians with their... We needed all those stories, right? And there is something uh, more fundamental that underlies that, and that is a black cosmological understanding of the earth as kin. So Black Earth Wisdom explores the spiritual connection, the scientific connection, the cosmological connection, both historical and contemporary, and I think provides a beautiful foundation to understanding, well, well, how did these organic practices come about in the Black community? It's because of this understanding that the mountains, the rivers, the trees, the eagles, they are not resources. They are not our environment. They're actually siblings. They're actually part of a, a, a circle of kinship that we need to reorient ourselves toward. And it seems like there's a, a lost connection for a lot of black people in this country to to a sense of history. And do you find that there's some resistance to this information sometimes? Absolutely. And it's understandable. You know, uh, my colleague, black farmer down in Philadelphia, Chris Bolden Newsom, put it well when he said the land was the scene of the crime. You know, we had centuries of chattel slavery, of sharecropping, tenant farming, USDA discrimination, lynching, forced migration. So it makes sense to associate the land with harm, with trauma, and to name it other, to relegate it to our past. And, and we have thousands of young people who come through our farm, uh, Soul Fire Farm, every year. And a lot of them are very skeptical. They're not trying to get out of the van. They're not trying to get dirty. They associate land with slavery. But I would add to Chris's statement, while the land was the scene of the crime, she was never the criminal. And there are those in every generation who maintain that connection. So when we revive these stories of belonging, I think it really helps the current returning generation to understand, I'm not adopting someone else's history when I choose environmentalism or land-based life. I'm following Wangari Mathai, right? I'm following John Edmondson. I'm following Harriet Tubman. These are, are my ancestors who saw the earth as kin and saw this relationship to land as really important. And I can I can catch up to where they left off and carry it forward. I know you yourself are involved in mixed media. You know, you have a podcast that you run. You are a writer. You're doing virtual workshops, live in-person workshops. You're an educator and an informer. Is there a version of this book that might be like an audio companion that might feature some of these voices? I know if you go to blackearthwisdom.org, there's readings of these passages that are on the website there. And it, it's certainly an experience to, to hear them. That. So, yes, I'm absolutely an educator. And I'll put an asterisk that I was a, a public school teacher for 17 years teaching environmental science. So quite literally took those educational skills and brought them to Soul Fire Farm. But at Soul Fire, we see storytelling as an integral part of of one of the three pillars of our work. So we run a farm, right? We run an 80 acre farm and we grow food and we feed the community. That's foundational. We also invite people to the farm to learn how to grow. And we work with a couple thousand folks every year, training them on these very practical agrarian skills. And then we have this third category of work of rabble rousing because the systems are whack, right? There's a reason almost all the land is white owned. There's a reason that farm workers are exploited. There's a reason why people go hungry. And we can't change that without changing the narrative. That's what pushes policy. That's what pushes you know, institution building. We just uh, had the Justice for Black Farmers Act reintroduced a couple days ago by Senator Booker. And that is uh, in thanks to storytelling on the part of black farmers. 
So all that to say, um, I dedicate my winters to storytelling and my summers to soil. <laughs> and and I am very grateful that almost half the contributors to this book have agreed to be part of our, our podcast series, which we do on Instagram Live. It's called Black Earth Wisdom Every Other Friday. Folks can, can tune in at Soul Fire Farm to actually hear the voices. Um, there is an audio book. They hired professional actors for the audio book because that's what publishers do, and I applaud them for that. Um, but we wanted to be able to create our own media platform forums to have folks tell their stories in their own words. That was Soul Fire Farms' Leah Penniman speaking with our associate producer, Jody Cowan. Penniman's book, Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists, is out February 28th. You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Dr. Clarence Lusane, Rue Mapp, and Leah Penniman for joining us this week. And you for tuning in. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at our website. That's wamcpodcast.org. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way The night bed on the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet bells and little girl dreams They said, oh, I want a big life Not a house that could have been like Where are you taking me? Where are you taking me? They said, hey,